crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Nachtigall. I am here still in England in our recording studio on the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College. I'll be here for another two weeks. And I have here in the studio one of Ed Stone's residents, or just lives just around a corner from here, Mr. Christopher Eames. Hello again. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, last week we had a program with with Chris about an article of, of uh, covering the animals of the Bible, more exotic animals of the Bible, uh, camels. Uh, we talked about bears, lions, leopards, even foxes, and um, but there were a few that we didn't talk about, and uh, there was quite a lot of feedback that came through, more than usual. Chris received some, and we received some to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Again, if you have feedback that you would like to uh, send in, you can do that by emailing to that address. Um, what did you think about that program last week? Were you surprised by the by the amount of response? I was. It is more of an uh, off-the-wall subject, looking in general at animals of the Bible. But there is, uh, I think, quite a lot of good interest out there in, I guess, what would generally be seen as a more mundane subject. But actually, there are quite a lot of interesting uh, aspects to these individual animals and why they would be found in Israel and and why people use them to try and disprove the Bible and what proof there is actually for them. Yeah, and as we covered, there is there is plenty. Please go back and, and listen to that program if you like. I think it's, it's uh, more of the... It's a more entertaining one than I just give by myself, so <laughs> we appreciate Chris coming on to, to lighten things up a little bit in that regard. I do have one bit of feedback here. Uh, I don't know exactly where this man is from, but he wrote in, so I'll read his email response. It says here, Dear Brent and Chris, thanks very much for the interesting program spelled with an E on the end. So that should give it away. It's a, it's a British country then of some sort with British stock. About proof of the animals present in Old Testament times. Uh, Leviathan is very interesting, and I think the cockatrice is a cobra, and the pygog, I have to look this one up, is an antelope. Is this correct? So he has a question there. It sounds correct. Chris is nodding his, nodding his head. But one animal that mystifies me is the dragon referred to uh, as in uh, Isaiah 35 verse 7. What is that? And it's very interesting how science and Bible agree about what really happened in the history of our planet, unlike the theory of evolution, which there is a lack of fossil evidence to verify. And he just thanks us for our efforts. So maybe I'll, I'll forward that along to you and you can respond sure. to this dragon and maybe produce a, a small article on Watch Jerusalem for us. So if you have any questions or any topics for future programming that you would like us to cover, please do send us our emails uh, so that we can um, follow up with those. And again, the email address is letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Well, when we don't get uh, feedback or questions from just the general audience, Haaretz, the newspaper, does provide us with a lot of <laughs> cannon fodder. Uh, most of the time, well, I would say 50-50. Some of their times, sometimes as we'll cover even today, their articles are brilliant, great, well-researched, fair, I would say, according to what the archaeological record can tell us in terms of the Bible and biblical history and whether it corroborates it or not. And other times, 
They're just, they espouse uh, theories that don't really have much proof. And they espouse theories of, of academics that are so far on the left that they don't even try and appear to be balanced. This latest one that we would like to cover, we're not even going to cover it much because I feel like it just goes into arguments that are just so difficult to prove one way or the other in so many regards. Um, but it was entitled, uh, where is it here? For you were not slaves in Egypt, the ancient memories behind the Exodus myth. And this author here, Ariel David, he is somebody that wrote uh, an article previously that I think I, I covered a couple of weeks back. And he tends to be one of the writers that latches on to a couple of good sources as he sees it. Israel Finkelstein is one of his best sources. And also another man that he quotes in this, Thomas Romer. I think he is uh, a French man. He excavates with Israel Finkelstein at, at uh, Kirbet, uh, or Kirjath Jerem, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They are the, the two that are espousing this belief that um, Kirjath Jerem, again, this is what the, where, uh, where the Bible says the ark rested for a number of years as it came from Philistine, uh, uh, Philistine territory and before David took it into Jerusalem. It rested here for a time and they excavated this site and found a massive platform from the 8th century BCE, so 2,700 years old, 2,700 plus, and they said it was a shrine for the Ark of the Covenant that, according to them, never existed. <laughs> so anyway, probably never existed, as they said. But this article here, I'm just going to read the first three paragraphs of it because it is about the Exodus, the period that we're going through right now, Passover. Um, we've just been through Passover in the middle of the Days of Unleavened Bread right now, which really does talk about and discusses heavily the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Is there archaeological proof of the Israelites in Egypt or the Israelites coming out of Egypt? That's what we're going to cover in today's program. I'm going to set it up by just quoting Ariel David here. Uh, that's right. I was talking about Ariel David because he wrote the article about King David uh, and uh, Finkelstein's theory that King David was a uh, his his empire was something that copied Jeroboam the seconds, and his name again has everything to do with Jerusalem. So I found that funny. Anyhow, this is what he writes. The Passover narrative is one of the greatest stories ever told. More than any other biblical account, the escape of the enslaved Hebrews from Egypt is the foundational story of the Jewish faith and identity, one that all Jews are commanded to pass on from generation to generation. Also, it never happened. For decades now, most researchers have agreed that there is no evidence to suggest that the Exodus narrative reflects a specific historical event. Rather, it is an origin, uh, uh, an origin myth for the Jewish people that has been constructed, redacted, written, and rewritten over centuries to include multiple layers of traditions, experiences, and memories from a host of different sources and periods. It's a hodgepodge, made up, as this article likes to, to say, sometime probably in the 7th and the 8th century. Around Jeroboam II's time, as this article brings out, and it was a myth that was created in the northern territories of the Israelites that the Jews under Josiah kind of copied for their own history to legitimize uh, their 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 place and their the expansion of Josiah once again, similar to what they they argued before. So I'm going to be here talking with Chris for the next 23 minutes, a long introduction on what the Bible says 
And then what history and archaeology say about the Israelites in Egypt? I wonder if you can, Chris, just kind of talk about the maybe probably the limits of archaeology in a way of, of proving this, this biblical uh, account of the Exodus. Sure. And I will say from the outset that it's interesting for him to say that there's no evidence for this biblical account. And he's he's giving all of these alternate accounts. And actually, there's no evidence for those alternate accounts anyway. Right. And e- even him saying there's no evidence for the Exodus isn't true either, because that's what we're going to talk about for today's program. But archaeology can give us a whole lot of information about this period, but it is very limited, and particularly so to do with uh, this period of the Israelites being slaves in Egypt and uh, wandering through the wilderness as nomads, coming into the land of Canaan. Uh, Nomadic people, I forget where I read it from, uh, the the quote from, but nomadic people are basically non-existent archaeologically. Uh, It's as if they never existed because they don't leave anything, city, massive cities or temples or anything like that behind. So in terms of the 40 40 years of wandering that the Bible talks about, you can pretty well forget about finding anything from that. I mean, maybe in future something will be found. What's interesting about this period is if you actually go to what the Bible says, we know at least that the the Bible says that God performed a miracle and ensured that their, their shoes wouldn't wear out, that their clothes wouldn't go, they wouldn't go through them. So they're basically going to be keeping the belongings they have, God's performing miracles to allow them to keep it. They've just spoiled the Egyptians as well. And so they're probably riding out of Egypt with a bunch of gold and a bunch of precious things that aren't probably aren't going to be breaking and, and you're going to just leave in the dust. You're going to keep those precious materials with you. And so it makes sense that we're not going to find anything inside an, a desert, a desert land uh, from the Israelites. Right. And, and even when you think about in terms of what they were consuming, Generally, you, you might think, okay, they'll have massive piles of food buried or, or uh, some kind of bones of what they were eating. They were eating manna, according to the Bible, and if you believe that, again, and there's going to be no traces of that as, as there would be with normal, uh, normal animals going through the desert. Uh, like you mentioned, there's the clothing as well. Um, but also, also is the fact that where they were living in Egypt at the time, just before the Exodus in the land of Goshen, uh, right along the, the Nile Delta. Um, I, f- I forget who, who was speaking about it earlier. I think it's in one of these articles uh, from Philippe Bostrom, actually, that, that, we, uh, that we may end up quoting from in this program. Uh, he talks about how there's going to be nothing remaining from the Nile Delta area where the slaves were, according to the Bible, where the slaves were living, because they would have lived in uh, mud hut type dwellings, which, as he said, essentially would have melted back down into the ground. Uh, even even st- any kind of stone buildings are going to just fall apart and, and disintegrate in those con- conditions. So what you what you really have here is is a paucity of hard archaeological evidence of the Israelites. But that doesn't mean that the, that there is no archaeological evidence. Right. I do think that's very important to bring out. And yeah, we'll, we'll link to this article by Philip Bostrom. He writes in Haaretz, were, were Hebrews ever slaves in ancient Egypt? Yes, that's his title of his piece. And so the editorial staff in Haaretz need to get their act together, at least producing something uh, uh, consistent here in this regard, I think. Um, but yeah, this area of Goshen, this no- northern delta, northern north. Eastern Nile Delta region was flooded every single year 
um, by the Nile a lot of the time. And, and well, it was. Um, and that's not to say all their buildings were flooded. <laughs> but even with the historical records from this period, from the Middle and Late Kingdom, New Kingdoms in in inside uh, ancient Egypt from this area, only 1% of written records through, through this period have been discovered. 1%, they remain. The rest are gone, vanished to history. And so we're looking on 1% of the known Egyptian history for this area, which again, this area, uh, I mean, the Egyptians wrote a lot. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, we're, I mean, we're, what... It's going to be very, uh, I would say, lucky to find an existent record of this people from the Nile Delta right. um, and, being recorded. And, and when you when you look at how the Egyptians recorded their history, they're not going to admit defeats. Or, well, when you look at the biblical account of the ten plagues, of what happened, all the Israelites upping and going, uh, a proud pharaoh isn't going to record that. Or if he is, he's going to skew it mightily. So when you look at it, that we've only got 1% of the records. And of that, what are the chances of finding a pharaoh actually admitting uh, all of this that's happened? A, a proud Egyptian writer actually admitting all of it that's happened. Yeah, you, you're not going to find much. And I think um, this article does bring that out. It, it cites another uh, pharaoh that basically... Um, revised history for its the previous pharaoh, wiped the records, destroyed the evidence as much as we can find um, of a previous pharaoh even. And so that is possible to write out um, people from your history, especially if it, it led to the, the temporary downfall of your nation as it did uh, for the Israelites. So all that aside, that's just showing you what we, uh, showing you the difficulty at trying to prove the Israelites in Egypt. What do we have? Sure. Well, um, the the article, again, by Philippe Bostrom goes into that. And again, you can find the link to that uh, for this podcast. There is actually quite a lot of evidence that uh, that describes the biblical account. And uh, Bostrom goes through the, the Semites that, that entered Egypt around the 18th century BCE. There are a lot of, uh, of records of Semites coming into Egypt. What do you mean by Semites? We, just for Semite everybody? people from, from basically the east, from around the Canaanite area. They were generally seen as Semites. So, and that's uh, what... I mean, there wouldn't be any specific delineation given to, let's say, Jacob, Abraham, um, or the is the the progenitors to the, the the Israelite nation going in. That would be given this general term, correct? Right. There would be more of this generalization, and actually, there is more to say about Jacob himself. But but anyway, you have these depictions and and these writings of Semites coming in, traders, that type thing, coming into the land of Egypt. And it's really interesting because Egypt essentially divides into Upper Egypt in the south and Lower Egypt in the north. And Lower Egypt in the north came to be, uh, as scholars will, will admit, it came to be ruled by the Semite people sometime maybe in the 18th century BCE, which is right around the time that uh, Joseph would have been in the area. And it's interesting because these people actually ruled from a city, capital city called Avaris, which that name alone links to the word Hebrew or Eber or Avarim, uh, Ivrim in, in, in Hebrew. So you have a name link to their capital city and what they were, the Hebrews. 
So there's a lot, there's a whole lot of debate as to who exactly these people were, these Semites ruling in the north of Egypt. Uh, This capital city was right around the land of Goshen, which is what the Bible says, uh, the the place that the Bible says the, the Israelites lived. And so you have this strong rulership happening here, the strong Semite presence uh, right around the time that Joseph would have entered Egypt. And during those early years as well, you have record of a some kind of a Semite leader, possibly a pharaoh he's been na- named as, called Jacob, Jacob Har. And uh, th- this article again, and we've got an article on our website on the subject, uh, makes the point that this could have been Jacob himself. Jacob was a very highly venerated man in Egypt. The Bible describes that. The Bible talks about the mourning for Jacob uh, when he died. And so you've got this record potentially of Jacob himself along with all of these Semites. Now, as time goes on, the upper Egypt, uh, upper Egyptian kingdom in the south rises in power and actually takes over the lower Egyptian kingdom. And so this fits with the, with the uh, biblical account of essentially the Israelites coming under Egypt and, and becoming more of a slave-type people uh, underneath what would have been the rulers of Upper Egypt. You've got this divide happening, and you've got a whole lot of documents now starting to talk about Semites as slaves whole listing of, uh, you've got slave lists. One slave list in particular mentions a woman named Shifra. Exodus 2 talks about one of the Hebrew midwives, uh, one of the slave Hebrew midwives being called Shifra. So we've got all of these Semites that are slaves all of a sudden. And then right around the uh, 15th century, the time that fits with the biblical account of the Exodus, it's interesting. You've got a whole lot of uh, royal pharaohs, uh, people in the royal lineage that are called Mos or Moses that have that name element, Pharaoh Tutmos, Tutmoses. Yeah, I think this is interesting and a point that you should bring out because this article wants to talk about this this other article by Haar. It's, it's talking about how Moses was probably a later addition to the Exodus story in the Bible. Uh, it says the first instance, I guess, when Moses is talked about is during Hezekiah's time. Uh, as according to them, because they believe that the first five books were written way after um, others. And so they all say that this is a later edition. If that is the case, whoever was this author that was writing potentially in the 7th century knew his Egyptian history extremely well because he chose the name Moses, which only came into vogue for a certain period, right, inside right. ancient Egypt. Yeah, that's right. There's a whole bunch of really finicky details here that really match up with this specific time period. And one of them in particular is the name Moses, which the biblical account talks of Moses being found by this woman as a baby before he had been named. And she brings him out of the water and and calls him Moses because they drew him up. This is an Egyptian royal princess. And the word is actually an Egyptian word. And it was around in the royal court in Egypt right at this time period that the Bible says Moses would have existed. Uh, you can read our article on uh, uncovering the Bible's buried civilizations, the Egyptians, and it goes into all the different parallel uh, rulers, princes, princesses of this time period with Mose or Moses attached to it, which simply means born of or drawn of in Egyptian, or as the Bible says, Moses 
I, I'll call you Moses because I drew you from the water. I bore you up essentially from the from the water. I wonder if we can go into this uh, tomb of Richmeier. He existed around 1450 BCE. And so we're talking about the very period that slaves would have been just about to come, or basically around this same time, 30 years, give or take, when the Israelites were coming out of, of ancient Egypt. And he has this dis- de- depiction on uh, the wall of his tomb that describes a scene just like those first early chapters of, of Exodus goes through. Yeah, exactly. He's He's got this, this beautiful depiction uh, of various peoples of different nationalities, including Semites, including very white-skinned people, actually, in uh, on, on the depiction. You can see a picture of that on our website in this article. Uh, and it shows them making bricks. And it shows, I think, one or two taskmasters. There might be more uh, that are overseeing uh, these workmen. And you've got accounts of these people being forced to make bricks, just like the Bible says they were forced to make bricks, using straw to make bricks, again, just like the Bible says, and even giving a, a quota, I think it's something like 2,000 bricks Yeah, they had to make a certain amount of bricks, just like the Bible says also exactly. uh, regarding this. Yeah, so, so it really fits with the biblical account in terms of the types of people that were enslaved, in, in terms of the names. You've got Shifra and, again, other types of names, I believe. Ishika was one and Asher, possibly. Um, so different parallel biblical names. Yeah, I think it's interesting in this article here um, that by Philip Bostrom that he talks about this and he says that there were conclusively Semitic slaves in Egypt during the time the Exodus is going to take place. That's that's proven beyond doubt. Not that the other article in Haaretz is even going to bring that up. Mm. They're not going to talk about that proof. But we know that there were Semitic slaves. So were these Semitic slaves the Israelites? This next sentence is interesting. He says, conclusively, Semitic slaves there, uh, Semitic slaves there were. However... Critics argue there's no archaeological evidence of a Semitic tribe worshipping Yahweh in Egypt. And what is this meant to prove? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really a, a, a funny sentence, actually. And, and I underlined it in that article as well. Well, yeah, the Bible says they weren't worshipping God. These people didn't know the true God, and that's why... Uh, you have God raising up Moses as he did. That's why you have Moses uh, acting uh, on behalf of God in terms of talking to the Pharaoh so that they can bring these people out of Egypt and show them how to worship the true God. These people didn't know God. I mean, I guess they, they knew him to an extent that they could cry out to someone for help. They, they obviously would have seen the uh, the Egyptians praying to someone or something. Right. So, so obviously they would have done the same thing, crying out to anyone, any higher power that could hear for help. But yeah, these people, they weren't worshiping Yahweh. They, they, that's so. God had to hear. Yeah, Moses had to go into the wilderness and God had to reveal himself to Moses to then go back and take these people. And to, to really, to find a slave people worshiping Yahweh from this time, in ancient Egypt, that was Semitic, that would be anachronistic to the Bible. That right. would actually not go along with what the Bible actually says. Okay, so we have slaves there. We have them making bricks. Um, what else do we have? Is there any other evidence that, that points to the biblical narrative? 
Sure. Uh, one one point, and this is still debated a bit, is is the fall of this northern kingdom and the Hyksos. They're, they're generally known as the, the rulers of this area. And around 1500 BC, uh, the dating might be might be off a bit. The the Hyksos were essentially expelled, and history doesn't go into too much detail with it. Josephus makes the case that these Hyksos were the Israelites, and that this was the time that they left Egypt. And Manetho talks about them. Manetho, yeah, exactly. He he mentions them as well. So we've got these two key historians who who mention that these could have been the very people. Or from their point of view, these were the people, and certainly it does match up with the biblical account. We also have a very interesting document, really interesting to me. This one, the Ipawa Papyrus, uh, that that it's it's been pretty roughly dated, but it it does include this period. People aren't sure exactly when the original document was penned, but it might have been around this time, around fifteen hundred BC. Uh, BCE, give or take. And this document really has some parallels with the biblical account of the 10 plagues. Uh, a few a few quotes from it talk about, uh, indeed, poor men have become the owners of wealth. Uh, talks about maidservants wearing all this gold. All the poor people are suddenly rich. And and this artic- this papyrus is lamenting this fact. And the Bible talks about the the slave Israelites spoiling the Egyptians and taking their goods. Again, this papyrus uh, talks about the river being blood. Indeed, the river is blood. Yet men drink from it and and shrink from thirst. Uh, that parallels obviously the plague of the river being turned to blood. The papyrus talks about indeed men are few, and he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. Mm. And you mentioned the Passover and and the biblical account of every family being touched by that in Egypt. Everyone with the firstborn, all the firstborn animals, firstborn people were buried. And this papyrus laments uh, a, a parallel thing. It, it, it appears to be a parallel event. Uh, it talks about every dead person is, a, is as a well-born male. This, this again signifies a firstborn, a well-born male. Talks about all the cattle moaning because of the state of the land. Exodus 9 talks about the cattle and the animals in the field mourning and, and, and being smitten. So this is, a, this is a document, an Egyptian document that's written at, around this time. The Ipawar document is what you're saying? Right. Yeah, the, the, the original that we've got uh, dates to about 1200 BCE, but it's known to have been taken from an earlier document. Now, I guess the, this is the case because only partial bits have been found from this earlier one. But uh, but the the uh, parallels are incredible. Like what what we just mentioned, it talks about barley being smitten. Exodus nine talks about specifically the barley being smitten, the flax and the barley. It talks about fire going up on high. Again, Exodus nine talks about fire together with hail ravaging the land. Uh, it talks about the land being without light. Again, Exodus ten talks about the thick darkness in the land. So boom, boom, boom. You've got all of these parallel descriptions of of this calamity that befell Egypt. And earlier we talked about how, yeah, you would be hard-pressed to find anything relating to the Exodus, uh, anyone admitting these kinds of things happening. Well, actually, we might have something. Uh, Again, it's not conclusively proven that this specifically does tell the story of the the Ten Plagues, 
But all the evidence is there, and in my mind, it, it, it certainly fits the bill, the Ipua papyrus. So again, the, our article uh, on the Egyptians goes into that in more detail. There's one other thing I think is interesting as well. When the Israelites were coming out of the land of Egypt, uh, God told them that he didn't want them to go into the promised land in a certain way. It says there in Exodus chapter 13 that he said that he didn't want them to go the way of the land of the Philistines. Although that was near, if you're going to make a trip to the, the promised land from Egypt, it'd be quick to go the coastal route straight up uh, and it'll take you over a week, just around a week or so, I reckon a couple of weeks. But God specifically told them not to do that lest they see war. God did not want them to be confronted with war immediately. They would end up being confronted by war soon after they go across the Red Sea, but maybe God wanted to produce that miracle to give them faith through that battle. But then in archaeology, if you go to the very outskirts of Egypt and the border between um, Israel and Egypt, you will actually see from this period six massive fortresses from the Middle Bronze that go into the Late Bronze that were there on the roadway that were guarding the road between uh, Egypt up into the area of the Promised Land. And so that too shows that, I mean, God was telling them the truth. Don't go that way. You're going to see war. And we have the fortresses to show us that that would have been the case. Right. That's another case of if, if the biblical account had been written so much later, how could they have known these things? How could they have known that that would have been a terrible way to go for the Israelites? There are so many details like that. Uh, another one, uh, the Bible talks about how, they, how the Israelites longed for onions and leeks while they were uh, wandering in the wilderness. Oh, that we could go back to Egypt and have the onions and the leeks. Well, that seems crazy, uh, 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 right, to, to <laughs> want those things. <laughs> of, of all food types. For us, right. that seems crazy, but not for, not for the biblical right. period. Well, again, uh, on on a work on a working list from uh, uh, some pyramid inscription, it it was outlined that this was the food to be fed to the workmen: onions and leeks. And so, if the biblical account was written a thousand years later, how could it accurately have portrayed these two very specific food types that the that the uh, fleeing Israelites longed after? There's there's that. There's the fact that Canaan is described from an Egyptian point of view. So if it was if the biblical account had been written so long after by someone within Judea, how would they be able to describe the land from an Egyptian point of view? Also, the fact that the the Torah describes accurately, I think it's nine different types of native Egyptian animals as well as a native Egyptian tree. Hmm. So how could someone a thousand years later on in Judea accurately represent that? Well, really, the evidence shows that, that, that the biblical, biblical account is grounded in reality and that someone did come from Egypt and lead these people into Israel and document the account of all of this. Yeah, I think this this example of Egypt, I mean, it comes up every single year. There's articles like this that come out every single year where people just don't give the time and the effort to proving the Bible that they give to try and tearing it down. For if they did, they would find plenty of evidence, as we've discussed today. Again, a lot of it is circumstantial because this was a slave people that walked out of a country that left it decimated. And the Egyptians that are writing this history or would write this history wouldn't be too proud of it. And so why would they, why would they want to perpetuate the knowledge of their own destruction? It doesn't make sense to do so. But there are some tantalizing connections to the biblical text 
in Egypt still in matters that they probably didn't see would be linked back to the Israelites. They don't care about writing down what they're going to pay the workmen or feed them onions and leeks. They don't care about writing down their quotas. They don't care about the other things we discussed. But what we can see today is from those documents detailing daily life of slaves in Egypt matches the historical description that the Bible gives they're, they are a match that goes hand in glove for those people willing uh, to to uh, face up to the truth. Do you have anything else to add before we close, Chris? No, but uh, again, if I could uh, encourage you all to take a look at our article, Uncovering the Bible's Buried Civilizations, the Egyptians. Uh, also, you can look at our article, The Antiquity of the Scriptures, the Torah. Both articles go into a whole lot more detail. There's a whole lot more stuff that we simply can't cover in a half-hour program, really helping to prove the authenticity of the biblical account and that this event, this this. Israelite sojourn in Egypt, and then this exodus really did happen. Yeah, we don't rely on what we're talking about today. This is just meant to be a teaser to get you into these articles and get you into reading what the Bible actually says, and then seeing if archaeology, so much as it can do, uh, matches up with those scriptures. Thank you very much for coming on today, Chris. Been a pleasure. If you'd like to send us some feedback, again, you can write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.